when we want to reflect on listening and how we can be better listeners, you know, the first question is, what does it feel like to listen to somebody? And yeah. I think the answer is, uh, well, it feels like hard work a lot of the time to really give your full attention to someone. That's hard work. Mm -hmm. But the second question is, what does it feel like when someone really listens to you? And I think yeah. the answer to that question is that it can feel like just a tremendous gift to receive. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Joining us this time is Robert Mundell. He is a registered psychotherapist and spiritual health practitioner who has worked in palliative care and other challenging healthcare environments for nearly 20 years. He is a graduate of Yale University and is the author of How to Be an Even Better Listener, a practical guide for hospice and palliative care volunteers. He is currently working on a new book for healthcare professionals and volunteers that draws on nature and the creative arts to enhance clinical practice and self-care called Listening into Being, Spiritual Resources for Reflective Practice in Healthcare. In this episode, we will learn more about the challenges and joys of working in the healthcare environment. Robert, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insider's perspective of what it's like to be a hospice and palliative care worker. Thank you, Jenny. It's a pleasure to reconnect with you and uh, to be online with you. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us what it looks like in a typical day for you. Well, that's an interesting question. Now, I'm sure many people in their positions might say that a typical day is uh, kind of unpredictable, at least mm -hmm. it is for me. Uh, anything can really happen in the course of my day. I work at a rehab hospital, and the heart of that hospital, at least for me, is the 10-bed palliative care unit that we have. And we have, on average, about five deaths a week. So it's a pretty steady flow of patients coming into the palliative unit near the end of life mm -hmm. and, and dying and working with uh, patients and their families in a very difficult, stressful time. Yeah. But uh, when I go into work, if I'm, let's say, walking with a colleague or chatting with someone as I'm going into work, I often find myself saying something like, um, I ask them, you know, are you going to have an amazing, extraordinary day today? Because I know that I am. I mean, I know or I expect, I've come to learn to expect that something extraordinary is probably going to happen to me. Uh-huh. And someone is going to say something to me that just gets me thinking in a new way, or it's going to strike me emotionally and just really enrich my day. And I guess um, this is true for uh, other chaplains I know that I've talked to. I mean, the magical moments for me are when I'm with a, a patient or a family member and I'm sitting, talking with them, listening to them. And in that moment, uh, in the middle of a story they're telling me, for example, they might stop in their tracks and say, gosh, you know, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I've never told anybody this story. I've yeah. been holding on to this story for like 20, 30 years since I was a kid. I've never, why am I telling this to you now? Mm -hmm. Those are the magic moments, you know, of this kind of work where it really feels extraordinary. And and I think that's, you know, that's a potential for any day I go into work. So I'm excited by those kinds of uh, really magical opportunities to be of service to people and helpful in a way that's so deeply meaningful. Yeah. As a typical sort of routine, I mean, I attend rounds. I'm a full member of the interprofessional team as a spiritual health practitioner, I'm called. I 
monitor new admissions that come in. I respond to referrals that come my way. And my goal is um, to meet as many people as I can and to do a spiritual health assessment with people to understand where they are spiritually, what their needs mm-hmm. and resources are. And then for, based on that, to develop some sort of treatment plan for the next time I go to see them, what am I going to be working on with them? What are the issues that need to be addressed? So yeah. that's kind of the, the shape of my day. Uh, you know, responding to the needs that come up, in general, I see myself as a professional listener, so I'm providing that kind of close attention and listening care. Mm-hmm. But uh, just, you know, recently thinking of the extraordinary things that come up, um, I did a renewal of wedding vows with the patient and his, his wife. Uh, he was, you know, in palliative care and near the end of life, and they wanted to renew their wedding vows. I thought that was just a lovely opportunity to do that for them. Um, yeah had a deathbed conversion recently. Uh, I was caring for a Muslim patient who's a post-COVID patient in rehab. So coming from acute care to rehab to regain some strength and mobility after being in the ICU for so many months with COVID. And he was feeling so guilty that he wasn't able to, you know, wash himself and prepare himself to pray as he normally would as a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling very guilty about that, feeling like his prayers would not be uh, acceptable to God. So I explored with him, you know, different ways that uh, he might get around that. Mm-hmm. Like in the Catholic faith, a bishop might say, listen, if you're a patient in hospital, you're not expected to come to mass, for example. So would right. there be something similar for Muslim patients? Well, he was rejecting all of my suggestions. So I thought, what can I offer this uh, poor man? So I, I finally said to him, you know, if you can't pray for yourself, I wonder if uh, maybe you'd pray for me. You know, would would you offer a prayer for me? Because I could certainly use it, you know, and I would accept your prayer for me. And so he agreed to do that. And then uh, I think, you know, that had an influence on him because a few days later, a week later, he was rethinking his whole approach and he was talking to his imam and other advisors in his life and and making some positive changes. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that that can come up. I had a a spouse of a dying uh, patient who said to me, you know, I want to tell my wife how much I love her, but I've I've never been good at expressing my emotions. She's the emotional one. And I Mm -hmm. want to tell her how much I love her before it's too late. I want to tell her how much I'm going to miss her when she's gone. How do I do that? looking to me. I mean, this guy was married for many, many years. He always listened to music on his headphones. So I said to him, you know, what, what kind of music moves you to tears? And so he said, you know, just like that, he said, over the rainbow. This always just moves him to tears. I uh-huh. said, well, maybe you could sing that for your wife. I mean, would that be something or play it for her on your phone or, you know, sing it to her? Would that be a way to express yourself, to begin to express yourself more emotionally. I mean, these are the kinds of things that happen in the course of my day. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you work with the spiritual well-being of family members of your care receivers as well? Or is it focused more on the care receivers themselves? Well, it's certainly uh, primarily focused on patients, but also their loved ones, friends and family. I'm available to uh, be of service to them as well. That's a big part of this kind of work in palliative care, uh, hospice care, grief. Uh, Yeah, it's very much focused on the family, like the whole family system, Mm -hmm. system of relationships. Yeah. And each brings a different perspective, of course. And sometimes there's tremendous, awful conflict that comes out at the end of life. Uh, I've seen a lot of family dysfunctions just sort of Mm -hmm. erupt at the last minute uh, last sort of crisis, but also just incredible moments of tenderness and care and peace and acceptance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Near the end of life. So the whole range of experiences of course are kind of played out in palliative care. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. So you wrote a book specifically for hospice and palliative care volunteers. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, part of my job uh, for many years, I, I've had the opportunity to give talks for groups of volunteers in palliative care and hospice care, talks on grief and bereavement and also spirituality, defining what spirituality is and mm -hmm. how they can address those kinds of topics in their work as volunteers. And over the years, as I've shared stories with them from my practice, I kind of developed this repertoire and an understanding of what their needs are. And I thought, you know, I should probably try to write this into a book if I could. Yeah. So that was my project uh, three, four years ago was to just start writing and to address some of the questions that uh, hospice palliative care volunteers have about communication uh -huh. skills and listening. And so I, I wrote up some of my stories that have been most moving for me. And I offered some tips based on my clinical practice, you know, body mechanics. When you sit down with someone, when you're listening to them, you reduce that power dynamic that's at play, that power imbalance, mm -hmm. uh, making appropriate eye contact developing or cultivating uh, silence and stillness when you're listening to someone, really practical things like that, that of course are applicable beyond uh, healthcare. I mean, they can really help so many people in our world today. There's not a lot of really good listeners out there. Right. And that was really the heart of my book, because when I reflected on my own experience of who've been the listeners in my life who have really influenced me and honestly, I, I, I think these experiences are very rare. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious to know in the volunteers I was teaching, uh, you know, what were their experiences of someone really listening to them? What was that like for them? And can they draw on those experiences to become better listeners to others? So mm -hmm. I, I developed a research project with a sample of hospice volunteers and I interviewed them and I asked them that question. And if I was to ask you or your audience, you know, to reflect on times in your life when you have felt deeply listened to, what comes to mind? Maybe your mother or your grandmother or a colleague. I mean, there might be some stories that come out about when you really felt that you had someone's full attention. And I'm willing to bet that that was a, a spiritual experience in that it was, you know, very moving to receive that very rare gift. Mm -hmm. you know? So the question I asked them, uh, there's two different questions that are, are relevant. You know, when we want to reflect on listening and how we can be better listeners, you know, the first question is, what does it feel like to listen to somebody? And yeah. I think the answer is, uh, well, it feels like hard work a lot of the time to really give your full attention to someone. That's hard work. Mm -hmm. But the second question is, what does it feel like when someone really listens to you? And I think yeah. the answer to that question is that it can feel like just a tremendous gift to receive. So based on those two questions, can we draw upon our own experiences to become better listeners to other people? I, that's really what my book is about. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the stories that a volunteer in my research study told me she said, you know, Robert, 30 years ago, I was in law school, she said to me, and there was this role play exercise in the, in the law faculty about how to interview clients. If you have a law practice, how are you going to interview mm -hmm. your clients to get the most information? And she said one professor was on the stage and he was uh, interviewing her, like she agreed to participate in this role play. And she said he was asking me all kinds of factual questions and not giving me much time to think and reflect and moving on and jumping around. And then she said the other interviewer, the other professor was completely different, asked questions that were qualitative questions, gave lots of time and silence to think and reflect and asked more questions based on what she just said to expand and develop, you know, and listen to her in a much fuller, more caring way. Mm -hmm. And then she said, you know, even though it was 30 years ago and it was a role play exercise, not even a real experience, she said, I can still cry about it. I mean, that's how moving it was for her. Wow. And she can still cry about that. Like she still moved to tears uh, reflecting on that memory. And so at that moment, I realized, you know, I think I've touched something here that's true to my experience and obviously hers and then others in my research study 
I think these are rare and precious experiences that we have if we're lucky and that we can actually turn that around and offer it to other people. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary opportunity we have to be helpful and caring for others, especially those who are, are grieving. Yeah. So that's, that's my book in a nutshell. I'll show you the picture. Yeah. This is it here. How to be an even better listener, a practical guide for hospice and palliative that's care. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think when we can connect to those times when we've been really listened to, that gives us motivation to then give that opportunity to others because remember how it feels for us. It yeah. helps us to do the hard work to be able to listen to others. Yeah. And, you know, people in my study were volunteers, you know, coming to this kind of work later in life, maybe after retirement, that sort of thing. And, and a number of them said to me that it wasn't until they were like mid-career like in their 40s and 50s, and they said they had an experience of someone really listening to them. And in that moment realized, oh, my God, I've been missing this in my life. Like it was a revelatory experience, like, wow. And then to connect that with that, I can, I can offer that to other people. Uh-huh. It's, uh, that's the real gift, you know. And of course, it helped me. I mean, writing is very therapeutic. And the prompt for me in terms of listeners goes back many years, my relationship with my dad. Uh My dad gave me absolutely everything in life that he possibly could, uh, except the one thing that I felt I needed the most from him, which was for him to be a better listener to me, but he just wasn't capable. So it was kind of like a wound for me that the one thing I needed most from my dad at that time was for him to listen to me. And I felt like I wasn't getting that. And then I received listening later in my life when I was Uh training to become a hospital chaplain. I I experienced this incredible relationship where I really felt for the first time, someone really listening to me. And I, I thought in that moment, I've struck on something here, you know, like an enlightenment or an insight that changed my life. Yeah. And so, uh, by the end of the book, you know, writing through all of these experiences I've had, I, I came to a point of healing uh, with my dad. Uh, he, he died uh, before I finished the book, but to come to a place of peace and comfort in my memory of him mm-hmm. was really the, uh, the gift of the book for me, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense, but. Uh, it, it, yeah, it totally does. Yeah. Um, because when we do our own work and process our own stuff in reflecting on our own experiences with listening and listening to others, it's a healing journey. Yeah. Yeah. It goes both ways. It's, it affects uh, both uh, partners in the relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really rich and meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So as a listener, I can imagine that you heard a lot of stories What's one of the funniest things that you've heard? I don't know if I have a really funny story like you would laugh at it. I'm sure there must be some, but I don't know. In this in this line of work, I don't I don't have ready stories of something that's really laughably funny, but Mm -hmm. I have lots of quirky stories, you know, like funny in the sense of mysterious weird kind of fun stories. So I, I could tell you one of those, I suppose. I, sure. Uh, for many months, I had a patient in palliative care, kind of unusually. She was with us for uh, almost a year. And uh, she was kind of gruff, lots of anger issues, some personality disorder stuff, I guess. Kind of tough to, to work with. But I worked with her and gained her trust and feel good about that. And then in one of those moments, you know, comes along, you know, out of the blue, like she stopped whatever she was telling me or changed the subject. She, out of the blue, she said, um, if you were standing on the edge of the forest and looking into the forest, there was a path going into the forest. Would you go down that path? And I said, yeah, yeah, I I would go. I would walk down the path. Mm -hmm. And I said, what about you? Would you go? She's no, absolutely no way. I said, why not? She said, well, a wild animal like a a rabid fox could jump out and bite me. 
And I said, well, isn't that interesting that, you know, a rabid fox might jump out and bite you. And then she said, well, you know, if I was riding my horse down that path, I'd probably feel safer. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, like, I, I like to get into people's stories, like these symbolic, imaginary, dreamlike imaginings that people had. So I said, all right, if you're riding your horse down the path into this forest and you saw me, what animal would I be? Like, would I be a rabid fox or who would I be to you? And she said, well, you are a giant fuzzy caterpillar who turns into the most beautiful butterfly with a red, gold, black, you know, all the colors, you know, there's this beautiful wings, turns into this beautiful butterfly. And then she started to shrug her shoulders up and down like this, like she was, you know, a butterfly trying to fly uh-huh. as if we were both somehow butterflies in that moment. I don't know. And then she just laid back and went to sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> I, mean, I just thought that was so beautiful and quirky, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's my story. If I was to think of a funny story, that's what comes to mind, I suppose. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love, I love it because at our house we have um we got some live caterpillars. And so now they're turning into butterflies. They've just barely emerged like in the last two days. And so all of them have emerged and we're watching this whole process. So the timing is fantastic. (laughs) And, you know, people see butterflies after their loved one. I mean, it's often to, oftentimes you hear a story of someone saying, well, I saw a butterfly and I, I, I take that as a sign of uh, my loved one you know, giving me some sign that they're okay. Uh-huh. And, you know, I did see a butterfly. I mean, there's butterflies everywhere, but I happened to notice one that was particularly beautiful and it was fluttering all around me. And I thought, huh, I'm going to take that as a sign that uh, she's okay wherever she is, you know? I mean, these are just the extraordinary moments that we're privileged yeah. to be a part of. Yeah. That's so. awesome. So in our earlier conversation, you mentioned the balance of being at the top of your game while also preventing burnout um, in like as a healthcare worker. What have you learned about this process? Yeah, I'm, I'm finding that uh, at this point in my career, after having worked in palliative care for the past 10 years and worked in uh, hospitals for almost 20 I'm feeling like I'm uh, having really rich, deep experiences with people. I feel like I'm being effective in the work that I do and the care that I'm able to provide. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I feel like uh, like I'm at the top of my game. It's a really good feeling to feel like, uh, like I, I think I can do this. You know, I mm-hmm. think I can be good at this. I think I can be helpful to people and to know in myself how my experiences are affecting me, like like the richness of this kind of work, I feel honestly, yeah, I'm at the top of my game and it's Mm -hmm. really good. The flip side of that is that there are times when I feel overwhelmed and I would start to wonder, what's this about that uh, I'm feeling this too deeply or I can't let this go or I really feel like this is... um, you know, impinging on my sense of boundaries between uh, work and home or whatever. And I, I wonder, am I, am I getting uh, some compassion fatigue? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I starting to burn out? Am I at risk for, uh, you know, my own crisis, my own emotional crisis doing this kind of work? I think the risk is very high. Yeah. So it's something I, I, consider a lot. And there have been times in the past year where I've been really concerned about this. Give you a couple examples. You know, looking into the eyes of someone who's dying or in palliative care, looking into their eyes and seeing fear there. I mean, that strikes you to the core. Mm -hmm. And an experience I had looking into the eyes of a gentleman with a brain tumor, uh, just panic in his eyes 
And then with the seizure he had, like 20 minutes later, he was dead. I mean, that just shook me. And that sent me reeling. And as you might imagine about healthcare, uh, nurses and my other interprofessional colleagues, they don't like to talk about this stuff. Right. They got to put it aside and get on with the next patient. Or if they really, uh, you know, I don't know how they how they debrief amongst themselves or who they talk to. But I'll tell you this, uh, it affected me Mm -hmm. and took a while to sort of come back from that. Another experience was um, with a woman who was, you know, dying with a a respiratory crisis and she was suffocating. And in those final moments, she was calling out for her kids, you know, asking me, grabbing me by the arm saying, where are my kids? I need to see my kids, all of them. She was howling in agony for her kids. And listen, I mean, though that just, that would affect anybody, whether you're a parent or uh, a child of parents. I mean, that's all of us Mm -hmm. in, in our fundamental family relationships to be present to someone who's in such uh, existential distress, wanting to see their kids and they weren't there, um, made me think about my own family, my own son. And when when those two worlds uh, merge like that, the work that is this intense emotional work connects with my own life and my own family. I mean, there's a risk for a, a crisis. Mm-hmm. And so I'm feeling those a little more often than I ever did before. I'm kind of wondering what that's about. So as I've wrestled with this question, you know, how can I be at the top of my game when I'm also feeling like I'm at risk for, you know, burnout? Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone said to me, well, I think you can be both at the same time. Like they're two sides of a a coin. Yeah. This duality that we carry. And um, it's just, just kind of happening. A colleague of mine said recently, it makes a lot of sense to me. She said, you know, this work that we do is a burdensome privilege. And that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, it's a privilege. It's an honor, but it's also a burden and it's a heavy burden. Yeah. It takes a toll on us. Absolutely. So I'm very mindful of vacation time or spending time by myself just to debrief somehow talking to other people who understand it's kind of hard to find other colleagues who really understand the Mm -hmm. stresses of this work. So yeah, that's an ongoing question and challenge for myself is what do I do with this duality? Mm -hmm. Cause it's intense on both sides. Yeah. As a grief worker, I understand that some of it, I don't get into it as much as you because I'm not in the field per se, as much as you are. But yeah, duality and being able to hold space for both is a constant challenge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we have a question. Yeah. What what drew you into this work in the first place? Well, way back when I was studying lots of theology and then uh, had an opportunity to do some practical training at a hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I took that opportunity, and that was a completely different world from academic theology. It was meeting people where they are in their spirituality and the real um, uh, stress and tension of their lived experience of uh, illness and dying and death. I mean, it uh, made things very real for me, mm-hmm. which I found that exciting. Uh, I still long for academic theology, to be honest. It's one of those subjects that you can never really get a full handle on. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I do miss that. Uh, I miss the intellectual aspects of it. But, you know, way back then, people were always telling me, you know, Robert, get out of your head and and down into your heart, Mm because that's where you're going to connect with people through your heart. They don't care about, you know, your intellectual stuff. And I was so reluctant to get down into my feelings, but I, I did it. And, uh, now my challenge sometimes is how to get back up there. <laughs> and that's the duality of uh, integrating these sides of me, the intellectual and emotional. I mean, it goes for all of us, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got started. And then, of course, I needed uh, some gainful employment 
rather than uh, <laughs> continuing to pursue my academic interests. And so uh-huh. it unfolded from there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, when my son asks me, he says, what do you, <laughs> what do you do, dad? I mean, sometimes I say, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just the, it's just the nature of this work that's so amazing. Yeah. I don't really know what I do. I hope it's helpful, whatever I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I also, I guess, was drawn into it. I, I would say I was affirmed in this kind of vocation for myself. You know, people would tell me sometimes that I was listening to them like I was a good listener. So I appreciated that kind of feedback. I've always seen myself more of a listener than a talker. I'm an Mm -hmm. introvert. So listening comes sort of naturally to me. And uh, it's just been a good fit, you know, this kind of vocation. I really couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. It just feels natural to me that this is what I would be doing. Yeah. When you started down this path, did you have any idea that you would be where you are now? Well, at the very beginning, I saw a path open up before me to do more training, to become certified, to go. And I knew at that moment I wanted to do it all. Like I wanted to become as fully certified and trained as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And that sort of uh, gave me a path to follow for a number of years. And uh, I've considered uh, developing that into other, you know, career opportunities and yeah, I, I would say I, I'm not surprised to, to see myself here and now still doing this, you know. It's, yeah, it, it does feel right to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, uh, I like these opportunities to try to articulate what it's all about, like to talk to you and your yeah. audience to try to make sense of it is kind of a, that, that for me is the intellectual delight and challenge of this work and to try to write it up into a book that is easy to understand, you know. Right. That for me is the intellectual outlet and brings everything sort of together. So you're working on another book. Tell us about that one. So I was in a team conference with um, a very elderly woman, 93 years old, and we sat with her. She was in geriatric rehabilitation and we sat in a big circle with her with her at the head, but the physician was there, social worker, psychologist, occupational therapist, physiotherapist, spiritual care practitioner, and uh, all of us in a circle with her. And we went around the circle, starting with the physician. And each of us gave our professional clinical impressions of this woman and her her care, her case. Uh And then the circle finally made its way all the way around and came back to her. And when it was her turn to speak, she paused for a moment and then she looked at every one of us around the circle. She looked us in the eye and she said, do you want to know what's wrong with healthcare? I'll tell you what's wrong with healthcare." She said, you're all too young. <laughs> none of you, she said, none of you knows what it's like to be 93. And of course she was right. Yeah. I don't know what it's like to be 93. None of us did. We are not there yet, but she knows what it's like for her. And I felt in that moment, I was just longing for her to say more. What does it feel like for you to be 93? Mm -hmm. Could we not prioritize her story? Could we not start with her experience instead of pretending that we have all the answers and expertise? So in that moment, I felt, okay, how can we enhance reflective practice for all kinds of clinicians, nurses, and the whole team and the physicians from a spiritual care training background, which is deeply uh, reflective practice. How can I translate my reflective practice to my colleagues to enhance their reflective practice, to prioritize patient stories and enhance client-centered care? Mm -hmm. That's the goal of my book. So I thought of all the different ways that I reflect. I mean, when I'm deeply moved by an experience, what resources do I tap into to be more of a reflective person? And so each of the topics became a chapter in the book. The first chapter is on loneliness. 
you know, loneliness these days is getting more airtime than it ever did before, but it's still a taboo subject for many people. Mm-hmm. It's so painful that they're ashamed to admit it or talk about it. But I find in my older patients, they're more ready to talk to me about it. And when I go on to the geriatric unit, I can almost expect that someone is going to talk to me about the loneliness at the you know, upper reaches of life, Mm -hmm. 90 plus, they're going to talk to me about loneliness. And so then I reflect on my own loneliness. There's been times in my life when I've been incredibly lonely. And so to integrate my experience with what I'm hearing from my patients, to write that up into a chapter, to invite other people to think about their own loneliness and how that might enhance their care, they Mm -hmm. might, they might want to ask their patients about being lonely you know, to open up those conversations. So that's one example. The second chapter is on nature. You know, how connected are we to nature and how does that help us be more resilient? Um, Art, music, these are all resources that I draw on heavily to uh, just reflect on my practice and to bring that back into my clinical setting. So Mm -hmm. loneliness, nature, art, music, resilience and trauma, you know, people hang on to pain almost, well, to the very end. Uh, One of the surprising things people talk to me about is this pain and trauma that's been unresolved in their lives for decades. So I think as practitioners, we need to be more aware of that and to be able to talk to people about that. Mm-hmm. And then the last chapter is something that's really outside my comfort zone as a high introvert. I'm interested in experimental theater and how we can use experimental theater groups for non-actors, including clinicians, to kind of break open some new perspectives on clinical care. So there's this theater director out in Vancouver who does these wildly experimental theater groups for all different kinds of people. And I'm going to go join one of his groups next January, COVID willing. Uh And I'm going to experience what that's like. What can I learn about myself by doing that? And can I bring that back home and develop an experimental theater group for my colleagues or uh, clinicians in my local area to use that in a way to really get a new perspective on the work that we do? So that's going to be the last chapter, but that is, you know, waiting for me to actually experience this and <laughs> what I can develop out of it. So that's, that's, you know, what I'm thinking about and working on. Yeah. So the that's book's so awesome. listening into being, can the way I listen, bring someone more fully into being, I believe that it can. So uh-huh. listening into being, Resources for Reflective Practice in Healthcare. That's what the book is about. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. How does the writing process compare to the writing the first book, like in speed and effort in compiling it? Yeah, so I, I'm taking my time with this one. I'm, I'm producing a chapter, like once, uh, one chapter per month, and then I send it off to my editor, who's very tough on me. And each time she sends me back her comments, I feel this is it. I'm firing her. I can't, she just, she's too tough. I mean, I can't work with this uh, editor, but then I sit with it for a while and I realize, you know what, she's right. And so I take all of her advice and I write a new draft and might run it by her a couple more times. And so that's how the process goes. I'm writing much more from my own experience, my own voice. Uh, I want to trust that I'm I'm deeply grounded in research and theory that integrates Mm -hmm. with my clinical practice, bringing theory and practice together. But in this book, I'm not feeling the need to quote other authors so extensively. I want the I want my voice to come much more directly from me. So it's based on uh, my clinical experiences and um, and my theoretical concepts and my own personal stories as well to to invite people to reflect on their own their own personal and clinical experiences in a new way, you know, maybe a deeper way. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. 
you know, after back in just, I think it was just before Christmas when it was all beautiful out with the, uh, the first snowfall. And I was leaving work after working with a man who was dying in palliative care that moved me very deeply and uh, working also with his sister. And it was one of those moments, I don't remember exactly what she said to me, but one of those moments that just struck me, you know, very intimately. And so I was leaving work in a very reflective mood, wondering how can I, what can I do with this grief that I'm feeling before I head home to be a husband and a dad and all that. Mm -hmm. And I was walking in the twilight, you know, the stars were just coming out and I was walking among the trees, these very large trees that are on the campus of the hospital. And I was listening to the most beautiful music on my headphones that just seemed to come out of the ether, you know, and I was just stopped in my tracks by how beautiful this music was that seemed to be perfectly timed to my emotional state. And that emotional connection just helped me release all the sadness I was feeling, you know, it was mm -hmm. just just the perfect time for that. So reflecting on that experience, I thought, is there some way that I could articulate what was happening for me in that moment with the music and the trees and the twilight and the clinical experiences that are so stressful? Could I articulate that in a way? Could I spin that into a whole book? I mean, that's my project in a nutshell. How can I draw that out using different ways, different lenses to understand what that's like and to write that out. So when I described that to my editor early on, she, she didn't quite get it. I mean, it, she said, well, I, I don't know if that kind of experience is strong enough to write a whole book about. But of course, I knew. <laughs> I knew that it was strong enough for me. Uh, now, I'm still working out how I, how I can possibly write it out creatively. But Mm -hmm. that's the book, you know, yeah. and listen, I don't know if this is making any sense at all, but I mean, that's what I'm trying to do in a creative way that connects to clinical care. Yeah. It makes perfect sense to me yeah. because of my work. I'm like, I, I'm totally there healing from our grief and having that space for reflection and expression of grief and having those different modalities for accessing our grief and releasing it. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. every, I recognize that not everyone is this comfortable or this willing to explore grief. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm delighted that it makes sense to you. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> connecting. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. These different modalities, they're all, accessible to us. And so how can we uh, draw upon them? You know, mm -hmm. in the chapter on nature, uh, I, I talk about forest therapy, that's becoming more popular these days. There's a lovely forest therapist, uh, not far from me, who takes people on forest therapy walks. You know? mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And not, I'm, I'm glad that you have so many different modalities because not everyone accesses these modalities in the same way. One modality absolutely would work wonderfully for me, but would be very detrimental for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. To have all of these uh, approaches uh, available to us to draw upon whatever works in the moment, you know, whatever mm -hmm. speaks to us at that time, whether we're caring for ourselves or for others. Yeah, it really helps to have a variety. And it helps to not only see the variety for ourselves, but then recognize that there's variety open to others too and to respect their choice in variety. Oh, absolutely. To be open to new insights and surprises along the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. What can I learn from others about uh, these experiences that we share? Yeah. yeah. Sharing stories is so powerful, both for the giver, the receiver, because we're all learning from each other, learning about ourselves. It's like an infinity loop where we give and we take and we give and take more and, and take and we give and it just keeps going. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that image of an infinity loop. I mean, that makes sense because uh, we can we can have an experience and reflect on it and think that we understand it, but when we loop back and mine it for more meaning, I mean, uh, as we age, especially, I mean, we have new insights that we bring back to that experience. And I think that's what I'm experiencing uh, in my grief around my dad. You know, I was angry at my dad for so many years. And of course, now uh, I have a new, new take. I mean, I, <laughs> I, uh, as I grow older, as I age and hopefully become wiser, I experience myself being more and more like my dad. <laughs> and it's not always comfortable to me, but it's inevitable. And, <laughs> and to understand more and more, oh, that's why my dad was like that. Gosh, why didn't I understand it back then? You know, it's like, yeah. like wisdom that comes too late. <laughs> But that's, that's what life's about, I believe, you know, uh, reflecting more and more on our experiences. I, you know, on this side of life, for me anyway, it's I'm trying to make sense of all that I did till the time I was 50. It's like, okay, now that I'm 54, it's like, what the heck? How do I make sense of what I was doing? I mean, I feel like that's the spiritual work that I'm doing at this time in my life, you know. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I miss my dad. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I told him I loved him before he died, but I don't, I didn't have a close, yeah, he didn't tell me. He didn't tell me. He just couldn't say it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, uh, for a, a long time, I thought, well, I'm going to be a better dad than my dad was. So I'm going to be like the best dad to my son. So I tell him all the time that I love him. And, and then when I say to him something like, you know what, Chris, he says, I know you love me. Right. So it's, it's good, but I feel like, uh, and I try to be a really good listener to him, but I feel like maybe that's not what he needs the most from me. Maybe he needs something from me that I'm not capable of giving. I mean, isn't that a kicker? Right? Yeah. So my dad wasn't capable, let's say, of giving me what I needed the most. But the blessing of that has been a whole vocation to listen to others and to reflect on that kind of pain that becomes a blessing and gets spun out into books and conversations like the one we're having now. I mean, isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting for me because I'm, I feel like I'm a really good listener at work and with my clients, not so great with my kids. <laughs> and I love that you said, um, suggested asking your son, what do you need? What, what do you need from me as, as your dad? Right. And then of course, as a teenager, you know, he, <laughs> He doesn't say a whole lot sometimes. I'm good. So, you know, these are conversations that are ongoing and they'll change in a couple years, five years. You know, maybe I'll learn, you know, what's going on for him? Yeah. He's willing to share that. You know, this is the richness yeah. and the, the frustration and the mystery and the beauty of life, isn't it? Absolutely. The learning. <laughs> yeah and it never stops it's life is so wonderful that just when we think we got it figured out it gives us another opportunity to learn <laughs> that's right it never stands still we're always moving yeah, always hopefully learning and learning is forced upon us when uh it comes down to the end yeah, yeah. We know how this ends. We know the ending of the story. How are we prepared for it and talking about it and understanding it in a healthy way that's helpful to other people who need to learn as well? Mm -hmm. This has been so insightful, Robert. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experiences and your work with us. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this uh, kind of exploration, this uh, spontaneous uh, dive into thoughts and feelings that I wouldn't be thinking about now unless uh, we were talking. So it's a <laughs> gift. You're a gift to me. Thank you. Thank you. Where can people find you? I have a website, robertmundel.com. I have uh, information about my book, and I also sell other books on spirituality, grief, and loss, and uh, social justice. So it's robertmundel.com. And I've got uh, a number of blog posts there and also podcasts. So the first podcast in my list is a summary of uh, the research study I did for my book that I was talking a little bit about you know, asking people to reflect nice. on times when they really felt someone listened to them. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what that podcast is about. And I'm, I would love uh, any feedback and I really appreciate your interest. I'm, I'm uh, very moved that you've been such a, a good listener to me in this conversation. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. It's a gift to me too. Oh. So thank you for being so open with your story. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. So if you enjoyed this, join us next time in our journey of exploring humanity one heart at a time. And you can also donate to the program so we can continue to have conversations like these in the future. I'll put the link in the chat and also in the show notes. Thank you for listening in. It's been a wonderful time. I've enjoyed it. Let me know what insights you've gotten from our time together. And thank you for tuning in to learn more about grief and how we can turn our grief into growth. If you appreciated this episode, remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on special subscription-only content. To learn more about what I do at Grieving Coach, visit my website, grievingcoach.com, and sign up for my email newsletter. I send out tips, publications, and upcoming events regularly. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are, and that we can turn our grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you can ever imagine. Your voice matters, so share your story. Mm